We either walk into the stories of our lives and we own them, or we stand outside our stories and we hustle for our worthiness. That's Brene Brown. And this is the Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining me today as we have an amazing talk by our most popular speaker. And she's back on the show to talk about stories and specifically the stories in which we believe about ourselves or the stories which we tell ourselves, whether those stories be implicit or explicit. And what she encourages you to do in this clip is to look at those thoughts, really inspect them and start to question them and see if these stories really serve us. Does it really serve your mental well-being, your overall health? And if these stories don't or no longer serve us, then we can start to begin to change that by creating a new story. So without further ado, here's Brene Brown. Enjoy. Shame is a very individualized, contextualized experience. Going back really primarily to family of origin issues. What did we hear growing up? And so one of the things I want to talk about is the role of story and shame. One of the things I've come to believe about shame is about the power of owning our stories. When it comes to shame, we have two options, and that is we either walk into the stories of our lives and we own them, or we stand outside our stories and we hustle for our worthiness. Because what happens is our worthiness lives inside of our story. And everyone in here, myself included, have orphaned some of our stories that don't fit with who we think we're supposed to be. And the problem is that orphaning stories and not owning them give shame extraordinary power. And so I think the key to shame resilience is about walking into our stories and owning them. The thing about wholeheartedness is, remember when I said that wholehearted men and women believe they're worthy of love and belonging? Worthiness has no prerequisites. So a lot of people will say, well, I mean, I'm kind of worthy of love and belonging, but I'll be really worthy of love and belonging if I make partner, if my wife's not really cheating, if my kid gets into Stanford if I get promoted, if I stay sober, if I lose 20 pounds. We have this litany of prerequisites for worthiness. And those prerequisites for worthiness are the shame gremlins 
Those are our shame triggers. If you wanna know what are the shame triggers, you have to ask yourself, what are the prerequisites for worthiness? And the way most of us get those prerequisites is they're handed down to us from our families of origin. And we definitely pick up a few on the way. I'm often asked by the Jungian people, can you have a shame trigger that's not a family of origin wound? And the answer is absolutely, because look at our culture. Yeah, I don't care how you raise your daughters and sons. We have far less control over the media influence than we'd like to have. You know, you can tell your kids every day that they're great and they're beautiful and their bodies are perfect. But, you know, there's a great quote that says, keeping kids safe from the media culture is like asking them not to breathe to keep them safe from air pollution. You know, it's like it isn't, it just soaks in our DNA and it becomes part of who we are. So I don't think all the gremlins are from family of origin, but it's certainly a starting point. So as you're doing this exploration in your own life, I would ask, what are the prerequisites for worthiness? And it's interesting, I heard some of the really big universal ones earlier when I asked about play. When I said, what keeps us from playing? And I heard one of the most universal shame triggers or gremlins, lazy. Like that's a huge shame trigger for me. Oh, it's horrible shame trigger for me. I mean, again, it's not only fifth generation Texan, but German American. Like we don't get sick, we don't miss work. We are the head of suck it up, soldier on, push through, get her done. And the interesting thing about shame triggers is that, and Stephen, my producer and I had a long talk about this when we were recording one of the CDs, The Men, Women, and Worthiness. There are those moments like Susie had in school where the teacher walked up and wrote stupid, where all of us can reach back into our lives, right? And think, I can remember this moment. I remember how the shame trigger got planted. I remember when this gremlin was birthed. I can't point to lazy. I don't know that I was ever called lazy by anybody in my house growing up. And let me tell you, right along with lazy is sick. Sick is a shame trigger for me. Like I do not do sick well at all because it's part of the same vibe in our house. I don't think I was ever put down or made fun of or ridiculed or shamed for being sick. But let me tell you what I saw growing up. What I saw growing up is that my parents never stopped. I saw my mom have surgery on Thursday and Friday morning she was driving carpool, running the brownies meeting, dropping off and start, she was the swim team starter at the swim meet Saturday morning. You know, I never saw my parents stop, rest, self-care. They just went, 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 went. And they even took care of like sick relatives or sick people. My parents were the first there with the casserole. But I also saw, and I've talked to my parents about this, otherwise I wouldn't be sharing it with you. I also saw a lot of self-loathing if they got sick. Like they were disgusted by their own having to stop, you know, or slow down. So one of the things we have to be careful of is there are not always moments that we can track back to that, oh, this is where this happened. This is where this message came in. But it's also just part of the values that we saw acted out in our families. Does that make sense? Because some of those are stories. And like for me, I got pregnant. I tried to get pregnant and got pregnant successfully, um, thankfully, um, during my doctoral program. And when I went back to school, and I think I was maybe eight weeks very early and told my, some of my professors and my mentors, the first comment I heard back was, we really thought you were going to be somebody. Wow. Right. Um, so I was just devastated. 
because my husband was in residency and, you know, when you're having that kind of long education, when I was getting my PhD, you don't stop your life. You know, you just have it and figure it out. And so I became really convinced that the best way to do this was to show what a badass I could be while I was pregnant and a doctoral student. Like I would take on more work and I would even be better and smarter and, you know, do everything like the bionic pregnant woman, smarter, faster, better. Um, well, I got hyperemesis. So for those of you who don't know who that is, it's like severe illness your first trimester. It's not morning sickness. It's like you have a huge amount of progesterone, I think it was what it is. So much that you rarely have miscarriages because progesterone is a protective factor, but you are sick. I mean, I was 18 pounds in my first trimester. I lost. I couldn't hold down ice cubes. I had to go into intensive care to get fluids and electrolytes. Like, you're sick. So I had to take a leave of absence. So can you imagine on top of that, we thought you were going to be somebody. So I remember checking into the hospital and still, and I was sick, really sick. And I was like, do you have Wi-Fi? <laughs> and my husband was so mad. And he was like, no, they don't have, you're in a hospital, you are sick, like dangerously sick. And I'm like, well, what I need to do is I need to get a TA to bring me all my papers so I can, because I was teaching too, grade them and da, 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 da. And I remember him taking me by the face and saying, you're sick dangerously sick. And there will be no Wi-Fi and there'll be no teaching and there'll be no grading because you're sick. And I remember saying back in total sincerity, I don't get sick. <laughs> and my husband's a pediatrician, you know, so he's like, you do get sick and you are sick and you will not finish out the semester, your courses, the ones you're teaching or taking, you're done. And so my parents came to visit. I had this long conversation with them about how did this happen? How do I get to 33 thinking that I don't ever get sick? And it was just a really powerful healing conversation of this is how you were raised. And our parents taught us this and we taught you this. And this was the message that weak people get sick, that lazy people stop and rest. And again, it was never explicit for me and so when you're thinking about these things that you've orphaned, or you're thinking about these parts of yourselves, that that's why, you know, Ellen, my husband's a believer as a pediatrician, that you get a finite number of illnesses between zero and the end of kindergarten. And you can either get them all in kindergarten if you stay at home, or you can get them spread out over time. But you're going to get sick like X number of times. It's happening. Well, Ellen got sick and missed school 10 times during kindergarten. And I remember time number three, I was like, I remember looking at her and going, I think you're good. Because, the sh and she was like, <laughs> you know. And I look up and I see Steve and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. He's like, back out of the room. <laughs> and I, I, you know, and I'm a loving mom. I mean, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty proud of the way I parent. I mean, I'm imperfect. I make tons of mistakes, ergo. I think you're good. But without awareness, it's really difficult. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's talk about shame resilience. Do you think y'all are all clear on what shame is and how it works, where it comes from? The gremlins, alive and well? Okay. Let's unpack. Let's talk about shame resilience and unpack empathy. Empathy is the antidote to shame. 
So here's the great news. Men and women with high levels of shame resilience share four things in common across the data. Every single time. Here are the elements of shame resilience. Number one, they know what shame is and they know what triggered it. Meaning they know when they're in it and they know why they're in it. They can name their gremlins. Number two, this is a really big one. They can reality check or practice critical awareness around the expectations and messages that send shame. For example, with my story, the message and expectation, I have to reality check that. I do get sick. I'm human. I'm vulnerable. And the last two we've already been talking about a little bit, and that is reaching out, telling our story, and speaking shame. It's not like an academic linguistic pet peeve that you use the word shame for shame. It's just that men and women who have high levels of shame resilience, not because I trained them, but when they came to me, they used the word shame. If I called any of you and I said, and let's say you're really busy, you're really busy and you're in the middle of something really important at work and you see my name on your cell phone and you pick it up and you're like, hey, what's going on? And I'm like, oh my God, you're not gonna believe I'm so embarrassed about something that happened at work. The chances are that you would say, hey, I'm right in the middle of something, let me call you back, I wanna hear all about it, right? If I called and you picked up the phone and I said, hey, I'm in some deep shame about something at work, that would be a completely different thing for you, right? That might be, what do you need right now? I can't talk to you for another 15 minutes. Promise me you'll answer the phone or screw what I'm doing, I need to talk to her. People who have high levels of shame resilience call shame, shame. They call guilt, guilt. They call embarrassment, embarrassment. And they call humiliation, humiliation. It's really important that we identify and understand those emotions and don't get them confused. So again, the elements of shame resilience. We know what shame is and we know when we're in it and what triggered it. We reality check the messages and expectations that fuel it. We reach out, we tell our story, and we speak shame. Big thanks to Brene Brown for stopping by. Her website, Instagram, and Twitter are all Brene Brown. She also has two podcasts, one entitled Unlocking Us and the other entitled Dare to Lead. And her most recent book is entitled Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection and the Language of Human Experience. And I got this clip from her Power of Vulnerability audiobook, which you can get on Audible. And I'll have all the links to everything I just mentioned. So you can go to the show description and check it out. And also in the show description will be a list of all the past episodes that she's been on the show. And I highly, highly recommend that you check out episode number 212, which is the most downloaded episode to date. So I guess everyone really, really enjoys that one. So, all right, don't forget to follow the show, share it or leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify podcasts. As always, I greatly, greatly appreciate you for it. I hope you have a great rest of your day and I will see you back here Friday. So until then, stay strong. Later.